Thank you, brother. And yes, that was very appropriate. You know, I was going to, I was going to ask you if we could sing A Mighty Fortress is Our God, but then I was thinking, but then we'd have to have hymn books and things like that. Why did I doubt you? No, I actually love that song. When I was ordained as a minister back in 2007, I was allowed to choose one song to sing during the service, and I chose that one just because I'm such a fan of Martin Luther. And if you don't know, that's a 500-year-old song uh, that, that he wrote um, back in the 1500s. A mighty fortress is our God. Will you bow with me in prayer? Father, I am grateful for this church. I'm grateful to be in the church. I know it's not because of my own doing. Lord, no one gets himself into the light. Lord, we are dead in our trespasses and sin. And just like you said to Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth, and he lived. He came from death to life. Lord, you, Jesus, must do that to our spirits as well. And you do that for men, Lord. You save a people whom you have called. And Lord, we're all those of us who are in Christ, we're in you because of what you have done for us, because you wakened us, Lord, from darkness to light. Father, I pray that you would please help us as we delve a bit into church history this morning, as we do, Lord, once a year during Reformation Sunday. Lord, help us to be encouraged as we hear about faithful brothers of old who stood on the truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, October, October 31st, the world knows as Halloween, but it was ours before it was theirs because on October 31st in 1517 is when, as you might recall, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses, his 95 arguments against the Catholic Church of that day to the church door of Wittenberg in Germany, which really started the Reformation movement, which we were born from that. Us Protestants, we were born from the Reformation movement, because we were protesting against the corruption that was in the church. And here we are, Protestants to this day, because of men like this. However, roughly a hundred years before Martin Luther did that, there were other men already sort of setting the stage for this to happen. And one of those men was John Huss, who we're going to learn about this year. I've titled the message, John Huss, The Flame Draws Close to the Truth. The flame draws close to the truth. You'll see why at the end I've titled it that. On December 17th, rather, back in 1999, so about 23 years ago, Pope John Paul II visited the Czech Republic during a celebration of their ancient hero, John Huss. And the Pope issued what was basically the equivalent of a, yeah, sorry about that, speech when he said this to the Czech crowd. He said, I feel the need to express deep regret for the cruel death inflicted on John Huss, is what Pope John Paul II said roughly 23 years ago. And that's because the Catholic Church condemned the Czech preacher, John Huss, to death, announcing him to be a heretic and burned him at the stake in the year 1415. His punishment was because he denounced the corrupt ways of the Catholic Church of his day, and his other crime was this, preaching the Word of God. 
He was born in 1372 in a town called Husinek, which means goose town. His, his name Hus actually means, means goose. Um, you've heard the phrase, your goose is cooked. It might have got its origination from the fact that John Hus was burned at the stake. Maybe it came from there. We don't know exactly. But So the country that he's from is our modern-day Czech Republic. When some of us were in school, that country was called Czechoslovakia. Remember when some of you were in school? Well, in John Huss's day, it was called Bohemia. And you'll see on the map where it is. Um, not all of us are aware or even where the Czech Republic is, and, and that's okay. But this is where he's from. John Huss's parents were poor, and his father died at a young age, unfortunately. He was a smart young man and excellent singing voice. He later on goes to the University of Prague. He helps fund his way there through singing, through also just general manual labor. But it's while he's at the University of Prague, he earns a bachelor's degree and also a master's degree. Um, He becomes a priest at the age of 29. And he says this as for why he wanted to become a priest. He said, I thought to become a priest quickly in order to secure a good livelihood and dress and to be held in esteem by men. So John Huss, just like all of us, was not born a believer. He had very selfish aspirations to become a priest. And in that day, it was really a good job to have. To be a priest, you got paid pretty well, you got clothing that was nice, and you got the esteem of men. But what did Jesus say about that? Did Jesus have anything to say about aspirations like that? Absolutely he did. Listen to Mark 12, 38 through 40. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at feasts, who devours widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. So the things that John Huss, before he came to know the Lord, the aspirations that he had, the sinful ones, they're not anything new. They've been around ever since Jesus' day and before, and he was falling right into that trap. But later, later in his life, because of his giftings, because he's so smart, not only is he a priest, he also becomes the dean of the university there at Prague. But it was while he was there, he came upon the writings of a man named John Wycliffe. Remember him? We started him two years ago, Reformation Sunday, two years ago, back in 2020. What a great year that was. We learned about John Wycliffe and how important he was. Why was he important? He was the first man, as you recall, to translate the Bible into English from the Latin Vulgate. Now, the gentleman who we studied last year, John, Wick, John um, no, William Tyndale, was the one to translate the Bible into English from the original languages. But Wycliffe did it from the Latin Vulgate, and that's not all the writing that Wycliffe did. He wrote plenty of things saying, hey, this is true about the Word of God. This is what's false about our corrupt church. And, well, Huss gets his hands on some of these writings At this point, Wycliffe would have been um, passed away for uh, over a decade by this point. So 
So John Huss would have never met John Wycliffe. Plus, Wycliffe was in England. Huss was in Bohemia. But Huss was intrigued by Wycliffe's writings, and he agreed with him. He agreed with him that the church had far too much wealth in that day. He agreed with him about the flagrant sins of the clergy, and he agreed that the crime of selling indulgences for the forgiveness of sins was, was horrible. Yes, the Catholic Church was doing that, selling pieces of paper endorsed by the Pope that says, you can have your sins forgiven if you buy this piece of paper, or the sins of someone that's passed on before you can have so many years off purgatory, depending on how much you pay. So finding these writings by John Wycliffe made John Huss more and more skeptical of the power the church had, but more and more convinced of the power that the Word of God had. And so, so he started studying the Word of God more intent and um, following the ways of the church less and less. And once he was converted by those same scriptures, John Huss, his desires turned into these. He said that he wanted to hold, believe, and assert whatever is contained in the scriptures as long as I have breath in me. Now that's key. That's key. Why do I say that? We're going to hear some things about John Huss later that you would not be able to go through. You would not be able to have such a resolve if you weren't gripped so strongly by something greater. Because it's not possible, it's not possible to go through all that this man went through unless you were truly, truly convinced of the truth of Scripture, its power, its authority, and its authority being higher than that of those around you who were threatening you. Huss also agreed that what Wycliffe was teaching was right when Wycliffe said that the people should have the Bible in their own language. After all, how can men believe what they can't understand, right? And so let's talk about his ministry. Let's talk about John Huss's ministry for a moment. Huss had a um, charismatic personality. He was uh, gifted in his ability to teach, and I already told you he was gifted in his ability to sing as well. Prague was one of Europe's most popular uh, cities, one of the most biggest and most popular cities in Europe at the time. And in Prague, there was a chapel named Bethlehem Chapel that was one of its most popular churches. So when Huss was appointed the priest at Bethlehem Chapel, thousands, over a thousand in a Sunday was easy because this church would, would seat 3,000. So any given Sunday, there was over a thousand people there to hear this preacher why were they so intrigued? Why were they so attracted to come? Well, for two reasons. At this church, John Huss preached in the Czech language. He preached the Bible in the language that they could understand. This was very rare and very uncommon. He didn't just say Latin phrases that they couldn't understand. After all, only the most educated clergy of the day understood Latin. And only the most wealthy could go to schools where they could even learn Latin. So the average person, I mean, the, you think the, the pay grade is different in our day. You've got these like super rich and you've got the poor. It was so much more um, stark back then. So many more people were poor than wealthy. So very few people even understood Latin. But that worked 
to the advantage of those in power because if they don't understand what you're saying, you can keep pulling the wool over their eyes. And that's what they did for hundreds and hundreds of years. Well, not at John Huss's church. He preached in the common language of the people, not in Latin. Number two, he led them in music in their own language. Not a common practice at all in that day either. We really take for granted a whole lot, don't we? We're sitting on so many blessings in our day that were bought by our brothers of old like this. So they got to sing Christian songs in their own language. In his sermons, he began exposing the errors of the church to the people. Now, what's interesting, many of the people also recognized the hypocrisy in the church in that day. How could you not? I mean, when you see, when you see prostitutes pulling priests into a room willingly, and then the priests coming out a few minutes later, and that was common, very common, and people saw that. And so he's exposing the hypocrisy of the clergy, even of the papacy. Children, that, the, the papacy means the pope. So he was exposing the um, hypocrisy of the pope as well in his sermons. And they were initially well received. We're going to come back to that. But I, I want you to keep in mind for a second this. During this time, there were three different men all claiming to be the rightful pope. There were three men all saying, no, I'm the one true pope. All three of them claimed to be a descendant, the descendant of Peter. The Catholic Church believes Peter was the first pope, and all the popes after him are direct descendants from him is what they believe. They were all claiming that. One of them was a former pirate. Yes, like a real pirate pirate. And now he's the Pope. And so people are seeing there's a disconnect here. And so originally, his sermons were received well. In the early 1400s, if you were to open the large wooden doors of Bethlehem Chapel in Prague and go in on a common Sunday, what might you hear from the lips of John Huss in one of his sermons? You might hear something like this. This is what he said. As for Antichrist occupying the papal chair, it's evident that a pope living contrary to Christ, like any other perverted person, is called by common consent Antichrist. Indeed, no one is more No one does more injury in the church than he who acts perversely and yet has the name and order of sanctity. I don't know if you really get what it would mean to say something like that in his day. Uh, It was more than just voicing your opinions. It was more than just venting your frustrations. It was more than just expressing your disdain. It was so much more than that. The Pope was believed to be the very representative of Jesus Christ on planet earth. They called him the vicar of Christ was his title. When you saw the Pope, you essentially, not exactly, but essentially saw Christ. He was the way to Jesus. But 1 Timothy 2.5 says this, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, not a pope. 
No man on earth besides the God-man has that authority, that title, that role. And so such bold preaching by us would only be done by a man who is fully convinced of the truth of the Word of God. And that it, the Bible itself, was an authority greater than that of the authority of a pope. He could only say these things knowing what that means if he was fully, fully convinced of the truth of the Word of God. Do you have that conviction? Do you have that level of conviction? Do you believe the Bible to hold a greater authority than any man on earth, even yourself? When your desires clash with its teachings, do you choose your desires or do you choose its truth? When your work duties clash with the Bible's teachings, do you choose your paycheck or do you choose the truth? When your friends clash with the Bible's teachings, do you choose your companionship with them or do you choose the truth? We have to ask ourselves these things because if you're making compromises over small things, do you think you'd stand up to the flames? Do you think you'd stand there and let the flames engulf your live body. He wasn't dead like William Tyndale that we studied last year, remember, because he was such a scholar and such a recognized learned man. They did him the privilege of choking him to death first, then burning his body. John Huss got no such treatment. He was burned alive. So if you'll make compromises now when your desires are different from the Word of God, when your duties at work require you to do things contrary to the Word of God, when your friends don't like you so much because of the Word of God, if you'll make compromises for those things, do you think you could stand up to the flames like John Huss? This is how this man was able to do this because the truth gripped him deep. It would have to because you will you'll compromise otherwise if you're not fully convinced of the truth of the Word of God. John Huss was not a man to compromise. He was a brave and gifted speaker. He was also a wonderful Bible teacher. Even over 100 years later, when Martin Luther was still a monk, he was in the library and found some sermons of Huss that had not yet been destroyed. They tried to eradicate all of Huss's teachings, and some of them survived. Martin Luther was able to find some and read them. This is what he said. He said, I was overwhelmed with astonishment, said Luther. I could not understand for what cause they had burned so great a man who explained the scriptures with so much gravity and skill. Notice that word, gravity. The weight of his belief, the weight of his conviction of the truth of the word of God came out in his writings that Martin Luther could say he explained the scriptures with so much gravity and skill. And even Luther, over a hundred years later, said, I can't understand why they would burn him. When it came to Huss's goals in my studies, I, I really, you could, in my opinion, boil Huss's life goals down to two things. 
The first one was, teach and defend the holy truth of Scripture. Number one, teach and defend the holy truth of Scripture. Number two, expose and renounce the corruption of the church. So to put it simply, teach the truth and expose lies. Those were his very simple life goals. Good life goals for any of us, right? Any Bible teacher, anyone in authority who's holding the word of God and proclaiming, thus saith the Lord, you would expect that from him. And so he did. But you can't teach like he did and say what he said for too long without it reaching the ears of those who were at the top. So let's talk about his struggles. Let's talk about his suffering for a moment. Not all of us are very familiar with the ecclesiastical government structure of the Catholic Church. You've got priests who are set over the churches, but then you've got an archbishop who's over all those priests. And those priests have to obey what the archbishop says. It's not a question. It's you do what you're told, the end. They have to. So the warnings to John Huss to stop preaching in this way weren't working. And so the archbishop knew how to put the pressure on the archbishop of Prague. He issues an interdict against the church at, um, in Prague, Bethlehem Church. Remember, thousands of people attend here. And it's one of the most popular cities in Europe. And so what's an interdict do? It does this. It means no baptisms can be performed no communion can be had. No one gets burial rights, meaning you can't bury a loved one on church property. Um, no sanctioning of marriages. No worship in the churches. And you might think, well, you worship at home. Bury your dead somewhere else. Go get married out in the woods, you know, secretly. So what? It's not that big of a deal. Completely different culture. Completely different time. You need to understand this. The people of that day thought this. To be cut off from the church was to be cut off from God. Because that's how the system was set up back then. You people want to know God? He has ordained it that you come to God through us, through the church. We get you to God. We get you there. You're not worthy enough on your own to get there. We are your mediators. And so to be cut off from the church in their minds, is really, truly, to be cut off from God. They felt as if they could do nothing to get to God without the church. It wasn't just, well, we can pray in our home. No. You don't pray directly to God. You go through somebody in the church, and they can deliver the message for you. Maybe, maybe pray to Mary, but still, it's can't confess your sins without a priest. You can't be absolved of your sins without a priest, is what they thought. When you confess your sins to the priest in that day, after you were done, he would say, te absolvo, which means I absolve you. I absolve you of your sins. And the person went away feeling better, but being lied to. And so to be cut off from the church was to be cut off from God you were dependent on the church in that day for any connection with God. So, it was, it was really a, it was a smart move on the part of the archbishop. Of course, I don't agree with him, but it was a smart move. 
Why? Because it really started to put the pressure on John Huss. Uh, some of the people who were initially enjoying his novel ideas and his novel way of preaching and novel way of singing in our own language, they began to see him as the source of their problems. We don't really care for your novelty anymore. Now you're making life hard for us. Even a friend of his named Bishop Stephen of Pollock, he initially stood with us. They would come together and they would read Wycliffe's writings together and they would say, yeah, this is true and, and, and look at the Bible. This is right and look how it contradicts what we're seeing. Yes, we're, we're together on this. Well, his friend, Stephen, would join the people of the town and pressure him also to stop attacking the Pope. Stop attacking the church. Change your ways. Go back to the way it was. You must be wrong. Sadly, listen to this. This is really sad. Later, this friend of his, Stephen, would become one of the primary conspirators at Huss's trial to ensure that John Huss was burned at the stake. Church, if your heart isn't gripped by the truth, it'll be turned by error. Let me say that again. If your heart isn't gripped by the truth of the word of God, it will be turned by error. Later, this took place. This is from an article I found in um, Christianity Today. They worded this very well, and so I'm going to borrow it straight from them. It says, on... In November 1414, the Council of Constance assembled, and Huss was urged by the Holy Roman Emperor to come and give an account of his doctrine, because he was promised safe conduct, and because of the importance of the council, uh, they claimed to make some significant reforms. So Huss went, and when he arrived... He was immediately arrested, and he remained in prison for months. Instead of a hearing, Huss was eventually hauled before authorities in chains and asked merely to recant his views. So he was tricked. They lied to him. They purposefully tricked him. His attack on their abuse of their authority, his attack on their selling of indulgences, which, by the way, funded their political ends, And the kings of the day got a cut from the sale of the indulgences from the church, which they used to further their wars. And so the church was getting richer and richer, and the people poorer and poorer, and they were being lied to. They were being told, this piece of paper ensures the forgiveness of your sins or the forgiveness of one of your loved ones. What a horrible, horrible lie for political ends and financial gain. And that was his crime, speaking against those things. While he was in jail, different bishops would come to him, different lawyers would come to him, they would urge him, recant, recant of your ways. You'll be absolved of your sins and we'll let you go. Turn away from these foolish notions that you've got. They would have told him something like, you already know that John Wycliffe was pronounced a heretic by the church, and yet your 
starting his movement all over again. Of course, he would have replied with something to the effect of, no, I'm simply teaching the word of God and what it says and exposing the errors. They would bring him out from the jail from time to time and put him before a committee. And they would show him um, portions of his writings that they would take out of context. And they would claim to have all these things against him. For a long time, they would say, and this, and there's this, and there's this, and there's this. How do you answer? And he would say, I need to answer these one by one, that none of them just stand alone, and you've taken me out of context in so many of them. Silence, do you recant? I, what can I? None of you have even met with me yet to discuss the scriptures. I was told I was coming here to discuss the scriptures with you learned men. Silence, do you recant or do you not of your heresy? And he wouldn't. They'd send him back to jail again and bring him out, and this went on back and forth and back and forth and wore him down. And when he saw that he would not be given a fair trial, he stated this. I appeal to Jesus Christ, the only judge who is almighty and completely just. In his hands I plead my, my cause, not on the basis of false witnesses and erring counsels, but on truth and justice. And he was taken back to his cell. Then on July 6th, 1415, July 6th, 1415. He's removed from his cell. He's brought before the council. Possibly even a a group of people there to witness the council. He's dressed in his priestly garments. Very ornate priestly garments. A paper priestly hat is placed on his head. On it are painted devils. And the words, the word arch heretic is written on it. And they do this elaborate ceremony where they show they are excommunicating you and canceling your um, vow to be a priest unto God. This is how they undo it publicly. They begin to rip one by one the priestly garment and its vestiges off of his body. And this display of forcefully ripping it away shows we are ripping you away from the church. You are no longer a priest. You are a heretic. Calling him things like the mouthpiece of Satan and things like this. Not allowing him to speak. Publicly condemning him as a heretic. And he's led to the stake. And he's chained to the stake. The wood and the kindling and the dry hay and grass are stacked up all around him to his neck. Almost to his neck is what I read somewhere. And a church leader approaches him one last time and says, John Huss, do you recant of your heresy? If you do, the church will have mercy on you and you'll be absolved of your sins. Will you recant of your heresy? And turn away from it. And he refuses one last time. And he prays these words. Lord Jesus, it is for thee that I patiently endure this cruel death. I pray thee thee to have mercy on my enemies. 
which echoes our Lord's words, doesn't it? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The easily burning kindling and stacks of hay were lit first, and the flames rose. And Huss looks at all the people he'd been faithfully telling the truth to, of whom he tried to keep from the heirs of the church. And he looks up to heaven as well. And it's said that he could be heard not only singing with that beautiful voice that God gave him to lead the church in worship at one time with, now he's singing at his death and he's quoting the Psalms. Remember what Paul said in Romans 8, 38 and 39? He said this, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's true. And he experienced it that day because we know his singing would have been interrupted by coughing. The coughing would have become uncontrollable. And then he would have died. And he would have woken up Looking at Jesus. Not a single reminder of John Huss was supposed to be left behind. After the ashes were gathered, they were thrown into the Rhine River. His books were burned, and his preaching was publicly and nationwide condemned. But the Czech priest's famous words lived on. He said this, Seek the truth, love the truth, and defend the truth until death. And some of his writings lived on as well. Later on in the 1900s, a monument was erected in his honor in a town called Tabor in the Czech Republic. And it was made to honor the memory of this great Czech preacher because actually even uh, a war happened after his death where some of his followers rose up and tried to revolt. It was unfortunately squashed. But this uh, statue of John is pictured holding the Bible. And you can't tell, but there's also flames at his feet on this statue. And the Czech words are written on that pillar right in front of him. These words, the flames draw close to the truth, which is where I got the title from this message from. You know, in the day of the Reformers, it was, almost, it was almost a guaranteed death sentence when you began to hold on to the truth and preach the truth of the Word of God. But you could tell who really had the truth. You know how you could tell who really had the truth? Because the flames usually followed the ones who really had the truth. We know that. We know that. This English Bible that we hold in our hands is a precious gift, a precious gift. It was brought to us from the blood of brothers like this. Let's hold to the truth like he did. Let's have a backbone to stand on the truth, not only when we lose job, but when we lose friends, when we lose our freedom. He was imprisoned. And then even should we lose our life. Let's not be like the parable where Jesus said, the seed sown among the rocky ground are those who hear the word with joy, but when persecution comes, they quickly fall away. 
that soil represented some in our day who I don't think could stand even a small moment of persecution of someone just saying, he's stupid because he likes Jesus. I think that would crush some of us. Let's have a bit more backbone like this brother of ours who stood and stood and stood even while the flames licked his flesh. And he stood to the end. He's famous for saying this before he died. I don't know exactly when. Very close to his imprisonment. I mean, very close to the end of his imprisonment. Remember, his name means goose. Hus means goose. He said, they will roast a goose now, but after a hundred years, they will hear a swan sing, and him they will have to endure. In a hundred years, they will hear a swan sing, and him they will have to endure. It was exactly 102 years later when Martin Luther, what we say, began the Reformation when he started with his 95 complaints against the Catholic Church. 102 years later, a pretty cool prophecy that he said, which came to pass, because they were not able to silence Luther because that started a huge movement. And we're birthed out of that to this day, thank the Lord, that God used men like this. And how might he use us 500 years from now? Will we leave a legacy like these men only if we stand on the truth? Not if we compromise. Not if we become like the world. Not if we bend to their wishes. Not at all. Not at all. Let's stand on the truth like these men of old. Amen? Father, we're grateful for examples like this. We're grateful for the fact that we can look back to brothers and sisters of old and say, wow, how they stood. The Lord Jesus was so mighty to keep them faithful and strong, even in the flames. Father, thank you for a rich (coughs) legacy that we have. Thank you that we have this rich legacy because we have a rich truth, Lord, the only truth. Lord Jesus, you you said that you are the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through you. Father, I pray that if there are some in our midst who might not know you, I pray that they would put their faith and trust in you, Lord Jesus. You died a death, not like John Huss. You died a death to absorb the wrath of God on our behalf. And you rose again on the third day, showing that the price has been paid, showing that you have paid the price to procure a people. I pray that you would draw them to you by faith and help us who are already in the faith to stand on the truth. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.